On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, it was courthand and sumile logicalis, while the rest of the week it was the organon, repetition, and astrology. The governess was always getting muddled with her astrolabe, and when she got especially muddled, she would take it out of the wart by rubbing his knuckles. She did not rub Kay's knuckles, because when Kay grew older, he would be Sir Kay, the master of the estate. The wart was called the wart because it more or less rhymed with art, which was short for his real name. Kay had given him the nickname. Kay was not called anything but Kay, as he was too dignified to have a nickname and would have flown into a passion if anybody had tried to give him one. The governess had red hair and some mysterious wound, from which she derived a lot of prestige by showing it to all the women of the castle behind closed doors. It was believed to be where she sat down and to have been caused by sitting on some armor at the picnic by mistake. Eventually, she offered to show it to Sir Hector, who was Kay's father, had hysterics and was sent away. They found out afterwards that she had been in a lunatic hospital for three years. In the afternoons, the program was Mondays and Fridays, tilting and horsemanship, Tuesdays, hawking, Wednesdays, fencing, Thursdays, archery, Saturdays, the theory of chivalry, with the proper measures to be blown on all occasions, terminology of the chase and hunting etiquette. If you did the wrong thing at the mort or the undoing, for instance, you were bent over the body of the dead beast and smacked with the flat side of a sword. This was called being bladed. It was horseplay, a sort of joke like being shaved when crossing the line. Kay was not bladed, although he often went wrong. When they had got rid of the governess, Sir Hector said, after all, damn it all, we can't have the boys running about all day like hooligans. After all, damn it all, ought to be having a first-rate education at their age. When I was their age, I was doing all of this Latin and stuff at 5 o'clock every morning. Happiest time of my life. Passport. Sir Grimori Grimersum, who was staying the night because he had been benighted out Preston after an especially long run, said that when he was their age, he was fished every morning because he would go hawking instead of learning. He attributed to this weakness the fact that he could never get beyond the future simple of Utor. It was a third of the way down the left-hand leaf, he said. He thought it was leaf 97. He passed the port. Sir Hector said, Had a good quest today? Sir Grimora said, Oh, not so bad. Brought me good day, in fact. Found a chap called Sir Bruce Sons Pit. Pitay Chopin, of a maiden's head in weed and bushes, ran him to Mixbury Plantation in Bicester, where he doubled back and lost him in Wiccan Wood. Must have been a good twenty-five miles as he run. A straight naked un, said R Sir Hector. But about these boys and all this Latin and that, added the old gentleman. A mole a mass, you know, and running around like hooligans. What would you advise? Ah, said Sir Gamora, laying his finger by his nose and winking at the battle. That takes a deal of thinking about, if you don't mind my saying so. Don't mind at all, said Sir Hector. Very kind of you to say anything. Much obliged, I'm sure. Help yourself to port. Good port, this. Get it from a friend of mine. But about these boys, said Sir Gamore. How many of them are there, do you know? Two, said Sir Hector, counting them both, that is. Couldn't send them to Eton, I suppose, inquired Sir Gamore cautiously. Long way in all that, we know. 
It was not really Eton that he mentioned, for the College of Blessed Mary was not founded until 1440, but it was a place of the same sort. Also, they were drinking methaglin, not port, but by mentioning the modern wine, it is easier to give you the feel. Isn't so much the distance, said Sir Hector, but that giant what's-his-name is in the way. Have to pass through his country, you understand. What is his name? Can't rec recollect it at the moment, not for the life of me. Fellow that lives by the Burbly Waller. Gallop, said Sir Gamore. That's the very chap. The only other thing, said Sir Gamore, is to have a tutor. You mean a fellow who teaches you. That's it, said Sir Gamore. A tutor, you know, a fellow who teaches you. Have some more port, said Sir Hector. You need it after all this question. Splendid day, said Sir Gamore. Only they never seem to kill nowadays. Run twenty-five miles and then mark the ground or lose him altogether. The worst is when you start a fresh quest. We kill all our giant's cubbins, said Sir Hector. After that, they give you a fine run, but get away. Run out of scent, said Sir Gamore, I dare say. It's always the same with these big giants in the big country. They run out of scent. But even if you ha was to have a tutor, said Sir Hector, I don't see how you would get him. Advertise, said Sir Gamore. I have advertised, said Sir Hector. It was cried by the Humberland newsman and Cardwell advertiser. The only other way, said Sir Gamore, is to start a quest. You mean a quest for a shooter, explained Sir Hector. That's it. Hick, hick, hock, said Sir Hector. Have some more of this drink, whatever it calls itself. Hunk, said Sir Gamore. So it was decided. When Gamore Gamorsum had gone home next day, Sir Hector tied a knot in his handkerchief to remember to start a quest for a shooter as soon as he had time to do so. And, as he was not sure how to get about it, he told the boys what Sir Gamori had suggested and warned them not to be hooligans, meanwhile. Then they went haymaking. It was July, and every able-bodied man and woman in the estate worked during the mo that month in the field under Sir Hector's direction. In any case, the boys would have been excused from being educated just then. Sir Hector's castle stood in an enormous clearing in a still more enormous forest. It had a courtyard and a moat with pike in it. The moat was crossed by a fortified stone bridge which ended halfway across it. The other half was covered by a wooden drawbridge which was wound up every night. As soon as you had crossed the drawbridge, you were at the top of the village street. It had only one street, and this extended for about half a mile, with thatched houses of wattle and daub on either side of it. The street divided the clearing into two huge fields, that on the left being cultivated in hundreds of long narrow strips, while that on the right ran down to river and was used as pasture. Half of the right-hand field was fenced off for hay. It was July and real July weather, such as they had in old England. Everybody went right down, like red Indians with starting teeth and flashing eyes. The dogs moved about, their tongues hanging out, or lay panting in bits of shade, while the farm horses sweated through their coats and flicked their tails and tried to kick the horse flies off their bellies with their great hind hooves. In the pasture field, the cows were on the gant and could be seen galloping about with their tails in the air, which made Sir Hector angry. Sir Hector stood on top of a brick, whence he could see what everybody was doing and shouted commands all over the 200-acre acre field and grew purple in the face. The best mowers moved away in a line where the grass was still uncut, their sights roaring in the strong sunlight. The women raked the dry hay together in long strips with wooden rakes, and the two boys with pitchforks followed up on either side of the strip, turning the hay inward so that it lay well for picking up. 
Then the great carts followed, rumbling with their spiked wooden wheels drawn by horses or slow white oxen. One man stood on top of the cart to receive the hay and direct operations, while one man walked on either side, picking up what the boys had prepared and throwing it to him with a fork. The cart was led down the lane between two lines of hay and was loaded in strict rotation from the front, front poles to the back, the man on top calling out in a stern voice where he wanted each fork to be pitched. The loaders grumbled at the boys for not having laid the hay properly and threatened to tan them when they caught them if they got left behind. When the wagon was loaded, it was drawn to Sir Ector's rig and pitched him. It came up easily because it had been loaded systematically, not like modern hay, and Sir Ector scrambled about on top, getting the way of his assistants, who did the real work and stumbling and perspiring and scratching about with his fork and trying to make the rig go straight and shouting that it would all fall down as soon as the west winds came. The white loved haymaking and was good at it. Kay, who was two years older, generally stood on the edge of the, of the bundle which he was trying to pick up, with the result that he worked twice as hard as the ward for only half the result. But he hated to be beaten at anything, and used to fight away with the wretched hay, while, which he loathed like poison, till he was quite sick. The day after Sir Grimoire's visit was sweltering for the man who told from milking to milking and then again till sunset in their battle with the sultry element, for the hay was an element to them like sea or air, in which they bathed and plunged themselves and which they even breathed in. The seeds and small scrubs stuck in their hair, their mouths, their nostrils, and worked tickling inside their clothes. They did not wear many clothes, and the shadows between their sliding muscles were blue on the nut-brown skins. Those who feared thunder had felt ill that morning. In the afternoon, the storm broke. Sir Ector kept them at it till the great flashes were right overhead, and then, with the sky as dark as night, the rain came hurling against them so that they were drenched at once and could not see a hundred yards. The boys lay crouched under the wagons, wrapped in hay, to keep their wet bodies warm against the now cold wind, and all joked with one another while heaven fell. Kay was shivering, though not with cold, but he joked like the others, because he would not show he was afraid. At the last and greatest thunderbolt, every man startled involuntarily, and each saw the other startle, until they laughed away their shame. But that was the end of the haymaking and beginning of play. The boys were sent home to change their clothes. The old dame who had been their nurse fetched dry jerkins out of a press and scolded them for catching their debts and denounced her actor for keeping on so long. Then they slipped their heads into the laundered shirts and ran out to the refreshed and sparkling court. I vote we take Cully and see if we can get some rabbits in the chase, cried the wart. The rabbits will not be out in this wet, said Kay sarcastically, delighted to have caught him over a natural history. Oh, come on, it will soon be dry. I must carry Cully then. Kay insisted on carrying the goshuk and flying her when they went hawking together. Th this he had the right to do, not only because he was older than the wart, but also because he was Sir Ector's proper son. The wart was not a proper son. He did not understand this, but it made him feel unhappy, because Kay seemed to regard it as making him inferior in some way. Also, it was different than having a father and mother, and Kay had taught him that being different was wrong. Nobody talked to him about it, but he thought about it when he was alone and was distressed. He did not like people to bring it up. Since the other boy always did bring it up when the question of precedence arose, he had got into the habit of giving it at once before it could be mentioned. Besides, he admired Kay and was a born follower. He was a hero worshipper.
Come on, then, cried the wart, and they scampered off toward the mews, turning a few cartwheels on the way. The mews was one of the most important parts of the castle, next to the stables and the kennels. It was opposite to the solar and faced south. The outside windows had to be small for reasons of fortification, but the windows which looked inward to the courtyard were big and sunny. The windows had closed vertical slats nailed down them, but no horizontal ones. There was no glass, but to keep the hawks from draughts, there was horn in the small windows. At one end of the mews, there was a little fireplace in a kind of snuggery, like the place in the saddle room where the grooms sit to clean their tack on wet nights after fox hunting. Here there were a couple of stools, a cauldron, a bench with all sorts of small knives and surgical instruments, and some shelves with pots on them. The pots were labeled cardamom, ginger, barley sugar, wrangle, forest nerd, for the grey, vertigo, etc. There were leather skins hanging up which had been snipped about as pieces were cut out of them for dresses, hoods, or leashes. On a neat row of nails there were Indian bells and swivels and silver varvels, each with actor cut on. A special shelf and the most beautiful of all held hoods, very old cracked rafter hoods which had been made for birds before Kay was born, tiny hoods for the merlins, small hoods for tiersels, splendid new hoods which had been knocked up to pass away the long winter evenings. All the hoods, except the rafters, were made in Sir Ector's colors, white leather with red bays at the sides and a bunch of blue-gray plumes on top, made out of the huckle feathers of herons. On the, on the bench, there was a jumble of oddments such as are to be found in every workshop. Bits of cord, wire, metal, tools, some bread and cheese where the mice had been at, a leather bottle, some frayed gauntlets for the left hand, nails, bits of sacking, a couple of lures, and some rough tallies scratched on the wood. This read, Connie's 1111111111, Harn 111, etc., they were not spe spelled very well. Bright down at the length of the room, the afternoon sun shining full in them, there ran the screen perches to which the birds were tied. There were two little merlins which had only just been taken up from hacking. An old peregrine who was not much used in the wooded country, but who was kept for appearances. A kestrel in which the boys had leaned the rudiments of falconry. A sparhawk which Sir Hector was kind enough to keep for the parish priest. And... Caged off in a special apartment of his own at the far end, there was a tearsal goshawk, Cooley. The muse was neatly kept with sawdust on the floor to absorb the mutes and the castings taken up every day. Sir Hector visited the place each morning at seven o'clock and the two ostrangers stood at attention outside the door. If they had forgotten to brush their hair, he confined them to barracks. They took no notice. Kay put on one of the left-hand gauntlets and called Cooley from the perch. But Cooley, with all his feathers close-set and malevolent, glared at him with a mad, marigold eye and refused to come. So Kay took him up. Do you think we ought to fly him? asked the wart, doubtfully. Deep in the moat like this? Of course we can fly him, you ninny, said Kay. He only wants to be carried a bit, that's all. So they went out across the hayfield, noticing how the carefully raked hay was now sudden again and losing its goodness, into the shades where the trees began to grow, far apart as yet and park-like, but gradually crowding into the forest shade.